I certainly get plenty of negative comments about, you know, how dare I, how dare I try to represent my age as still being sexy. That seems to be a last frontier. That's 57-year-old supermodel Paulina Poroskova, who is taking an unfiltered look at her decades in front of the camera. You can be talented and older, you can be handsome and older, you can be even beautiful and older, but you cannot be sexy and older. That is absolutely out of bounds. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Paulina Poroskova was born behind the Iron Curtain in Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia. Radio Free Europe was literally the only way that you could find out about this world that was beyond yours. And so it was a very dangerous program. Her family made its way to freedom, and she made it to stardom, becoming one of the top models in the world as a teen. She went on to become the first Central European model featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated's swimsuit issue and married a rock star, Cars lead singer Rick Ocasek. But the collapse of that marriage, a legal saga after Ocasek's death, and the COVID-19 pandemic sent Poroskova into a dark place. That was me drowning. You were watching me struggle to stay alive, and I wasn't the only one. Now, Poroskova is reflecting on her life in her third book, titled No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful. Is this the first time in your life people hear you? It's undoubtedly the first time in my life that people hear me, which is of course something that has escaped me for most of my life because nobody felt like they could connect to a supermodel. I was too far out there. It was, oh, you're, you know, you're beautiful, you're rich, you have it all. Like, what, what do I have in common with you? Well, I think reading my book, you discover how much you have in common with me and it humanizes me. For the first time in my life, I get to be a person. And you know what? It feels pretty good. Paulina Poroskova, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. You were first photographed when you were four years old as a girl behind the Iron Curtain who became a political pawn in the Cold War. Your parents were political refugees, fled to Sweden, Mm -hmm. and then began a hunger strike in front of the Czech embassy in Stockholm in order to bring public attention to the fact that their daughter was stuck behind the Iron Curtain. Correct. I I was used as this, like, little chubby child that you should feel sorry for. And, I mean, that's fine. Uh, I... But I wasn't aware of it because I was still, I was in the Czech Republic living with my grandmother. And until my mother came to get me and brought me to Sweden, I wasn't at all aware of why all these pictures that had been done of me when I was four, five, six, seven, eight, nine um, were taken. And it was only when I got to Sweden and I went, oh, everybody knows me and everybody knows me as the communist kid. So Swedish photographers would come to Czechoslovakia to find poor Paulina. And they would ask you to pose? Well, they couldn't speak Czech. And of course, I couldn't speak English. And they were undercover. So they were technically not supposed to be there. Uh, so what they did a lot of is they would, they would sort of look around and they would, you know, pick up a teddy bear, hand it to me and go, hmm? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, they want me to pick up the bear and look like I'm crying. So fine. I want to go out and play. I want to be with my girlfriends. I don't want to do this. So here it is. Bear, 
sad. Can I leave now? And actually, that was that was pretty much the rest of my <laughs> life in one way or another. Uh, were you aware of the special nature of your circumstances? No, you know, as a child, you assume that everybody else is has the same life as you. I mean, it really takes a while to figure out that your life is not a normal one. And I've seen this with with all, you know, with other people who had very unusual childhoods that we all say we didn't figure it out until it was like a, you know, one day where it clicked in when you saw somebody else, somebody else's family, where you went, "Oh, wait a minute. Their par- parents don't live in Sweden?" Like I automatically assumed that all parents lived in Sweden, that that is what parents did. That's what parents were for, to live in Sweden. I didn't know what Sweden was, but that is just, you know, that is how I explained my world. Um, and so, no, and and I I think this is in my book, but I, again, th- that photographers were coming and taking pictures of me every month or so, uh, making me do these silly poses. I thought all children were doing that until I asked, I, you know, my girlfriend said, hey, you want to play on Sunday? And I was like, no, you know, the photographers are coming again, you know, the ones that come every Sunday. And she was like, huh? And I was like, wait, the photographers that come every Sunday, right? You know those. And she was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I went, oh, okay, there's something different about me. There's something special about me. And not necessarily special good. More like, you know, I think I eventually concluded it was special bad, of course, but um, but just different. I, so I knew something about me was different. After that experience, you actually developed a distaste for being in the public eye, which is funny because you went on to become one of the most famous international supermodels of the 1980s. You became the first Eastern European model ever to make it on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And you reflect in your new book that much of your life you have spent being seen and not heard. Now that you're in your late 50s, it seems to me that this has changed. Is this the first time in your life people hear you? It's undoubtedly the first time in my life that people hear me. You've published your third book. One was a novel. One was a children's book. Mm -hmm. This one is entitled No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful. It's a series of essays, really reflections on lessons learned Mm. in your life. What will someone take away from your book? I have no idea. I wasn't writing it with a... I wasn't trying to dispense a lesson to humanity by writing my book. Um, it was it, it was sort of faintly organic. It was Maria Shriver who asked me if I would write a book for her new imprint. She her her only instructions was, I really like what you do do on Instagram. So like do your thing like you do it on Instagram. And I think she sort of expected, you know, shorter chapters and sort of, you know, hey, kind of like pick yourself up and go and appreciate your life and all that. But I wasn't quite there yet. So instead, I did one of those smashing the veins, bleeding out all over the typewriter and going, here it is. So I I don't know what, I, I don't even know what I can say that I hope people take away from the book. Um because it was again, it wasn't written with with uh, premeditation or a um, that sort of manipulation in mind. It was just pouring myself out on paper. And if you connect to it because you see um, some parts of your emotional life in there, 
amazing. That would be wonderful. And if not, well, you know. But you you deal with some transcendent and resonant themes. You deal with anxiety. You mm-hmm. deal with depression. You deal with grief. You deal with betrayal. You deal with divorce. And you aging. Aging. These are meditations on all of them. And they're not all straightforward. Um, they're nuanced. Is there a lesson that you have taken away from this book? Oh, uh, the lesson I have taken away from this book is a similar lesson to what I was actually learning on Instagram prior to writing this book, which is that when we dare to be vulnerable and dare to completely strip in front of somebody else, um, only the most callow uh, will walk away from you, but the rest you can actually connect to and with on a really human level, which is of course something that has escaped me for most of my life because nobody felt like they could connect to a supermodel. I was, you know, too far out there. It was, ah, oh, you're, you know, you're beautiful, you're rich, you have it all. Like, what, what do I have in common with you? Well, I think reading my book, you discover how much you have in common with me and it humanizes me, which like the for the first time in my life, I get to be a person. And you know what? It feels pretty good. You were 13 when one of your school friends who was an aspiring makeup artist yes. asked you to be her palette so she could send in photographs to a Parisian modeling agency. That photo that was submitted actually launched your modeling career. She didn't become a makeup artist. Mm. And by the time you were 15, you were professionally modeling in Paris. Mm -hmm. You wrote about that image on Instagram. Uh, When the photos were developed, everybody looked lovely, but my friends were shocked by the ones of me. No one had thought of me as pretty. But in the photos, something magical happened. It was as if an entirely new person was captured by the lens. What was it that captured you differently and catapulted you to the highest, most esteemed modeling agencies in Paris? Two things. Um, Luck. Luck that my specific brand of features were what was seen as attractive at that point. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, it's actually a question of mathematics. It literally is mathematics. It's it's angles and planes of your face, the way they reflect light, um, the way your face is structured, basically, where it looks good in certain lights. And I have seen incredibly beautiful women that are, I think, the, the most beautiful women I've ever met that don't fo- photograph particularly well because the mathematics of their face, their beauty lies elsewhere but in the numbers. And it just so happens I got the numbers, lucky me. Let's talk about that experience in Paris and modeling and the industry generally. You know, you write that the ideal woman is not a woman. She's a girl. Is the modeling industry full of girls who are cast as women? Of course. Of course. And, you know, I think things are changing now and they're changing at a rather rapid uh, um, pace. But um, when I started in 1980, the modeling business, you were old at 25. At 25 is when your death warrant was signed and you were sent out on the burning boat. Goodbye. 
We don't need you anymore. So imagine for us, models, girls, 25 was old. That is when your life ended. So yes, of course, I, you know, it was an industry that only welcomed, well, I was sort of the youngest one for a little while, but 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, 17, 18, 19 were sort of the prime years. By 20, if you tried to become a model, you were already like, ah, you're, you're a little on the old side there. Um, and I think I used, and I used, I used to be told that the reason why they needed these young, nubile girls as opposed to women was again, was a technical thing. It's the way that light bounces off your skin. And, you know, back in the 1980s, we didn't have all these like face tune and filters and auto tunes and all of this stuff that you can, you know, make yourself look like mm -hmm. anybody you want at any point. Uh, retouching was extremely expensive. Yeah. So your face was really, it's like, you know, what they bought is what they got and you had to deliver. So, you know, if they if they bought me for the day, the Paulina face, Paulina had to deliver the Paulina face. If I walked into work with a pimple, that would mean you don't have a job, you're going back home and you don't have the money for this week. So, too bad. But in retrospect, in which I sort of talk about that in my book, so I think that the other darker side of why modeling was so keen on girls was because you know, girls try to please. We have been raised to 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 please, to be agreeable. And so when, you know, a photographer asks you to do this or to do this or to do this, you know, you're endlessly obliging and agreeable, uh, you know, and you want to be liked. And this is really important. And you're... And you're, people pleasing. Uh, yeah, of course, people pleasing. And, you know, every job can be your last yeah. So you're not going to pull an attitude because you can't afford to. Mm -hmm. Try to do that to a woman. That's not going to go over real well. You know, somebody in her 30s or 40s is going to go, you want me to what? Why? Yeah. That's dangerous. I'm not going to do that. Harassment was also part of the industry. Oh, yes. Harassment used to be called compliments. And <laughs> you even write, harassment perversely became a confirmation of desirability. Correct. Like you just said, compliments. Yeah. In other words, if you weren't getting harassed, you felt you weren't doing something right. No, you'd be bereft. Like this photographer is known for harassing everybody. So why is he not harassing me? What's wrong with me? I guess I'm ugly. Like, How much has the industry changed? Uh, quite a lot. And I think it's, uh, you know, the advent of media, of of social media and uh, and the internet. But I'm also, you know, now when I model, the five times that I get to model a year, because it's not like super high demand for older women, despite of what it might look like on my Instagram. I think this is because of social media. This is directly tied, tied into social media. You know, if something happened now, like what happened to me back in the days with photographers with their endlessly gaping bathrobes, well, and you sort of had to learn how to avoid it and laugh and sort of take it on yourself so you wouldn't offend their male ego. You go, well, that's very nice. It's just that I'm on my period. I mean, you, you just invent anything to just, sort of, you know, to try to get out of things. And I think, you know, we, we got pretty good at doing that. And we just saw that as a part of the job. That is obviously not the case anymore, thank God. And I think if a photographer does something inappropriate to a model who's got X amount of million followers, 
they're not going to get away with it. So but there's accountability in social media. Women have a lot more power in their corner today than we did. We had none. I mean, we literally had none. We had no voices. We were clothes hangers that were supposed to show up, you know, get an outfit draped on you, get makeup and hair. You had no saying about the way you wanted to look. That was never up to you. That's another misconception. People always go, oh, modeling. It's like, what a great job. You go and then you're made to look really pretty and you wear all these really beautiful clothes and you go click and then you take the money and you go home like, oh, great. Well, that's not the job at all. <laughs> Um, in March, prosecutors charged three people for allegedly operating a prostitution ring out of a Los Angeles modeling agency. Mm. Um, the alleged offenses, including setting up hundreds of sexual encounters in exchange for money and then cutting off models' access to shooting porn in order to pressure them into po- prostitution. Does this kind of allegation surprise you? Are you kidding? No, of course not. I mean, you know, even the very reputable agencies of of their day, it was perhaps a little worded, a little milder, but, oh, you would get lots of invitations to go out at night with a group of people you didn't know, and you didn't know that that somebody was getting paid to get you there. And then once you were there, well, it was up to the... You know, it was up to the men to then entice you into going on their private plane to their private island or whatever it is that they had in mind. And you could usually say no. Um, But then there were the girls who weren't making very much money and were having a really hard time trying to stay in this job that would say yes. Um, And again, it was, it's funny because technically it really is prostitution. And yet it was seen as, as, you know, some like it was played off as like, well, you know, you go to a beautiful private island for five days and you come home with $100,000. Like, what's wrong with that? In 2021, you joined women in support of allegations made against former European chief of elite modeling management for incidents involving rape and sexual misconduct that took place over the course of the 80s and 90s. That case was closed this year, because the allegations were beyond the statute of limitations. When you heard about the outcome of those investigations, what was your reaction? Oh, God. Um, I sort of hate to admit it, but I'm going to be honest. Not surprised. Yeah. That's what I've seen my whole life. I've just seen people get away with it their whole life and my whole life and why... As much as one hopes that things will change and they will change drastically, and some things do, not the whole world can change overnight. And I'm sort of aware of that. And so it's 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 kind of a disappointment of, oh, all right, so it's we haven't gotten that far. We pretend we've gotten far, but we haven't gotten that far yet. At the age of 20, early in your modeling career, you were asked by a journalist what responsibility you have to beauty. Mm -hmm. And you write in your book that at the time, it sort of stumped you. And you've thought about that question now for the last several years. It made me feel guilty. How do you answer that question now? Uh, Well, it stumped me because until I had been asked that, I didn't realize there was such a thing. Well, you write, the responsibility of beauty is not 
in the beheld, it is in the eyes of the beholder. And that is, after much ruminating on the subject, is what I came up with. This is sort of how I solved it in my own head. And I and I truly believe that. So tell us, tell us what that means. Tell well, me, what it, does that mean to you? Well, okay, so the responsibility of beauty, I don't think that you're necessarily, um, you can't be held responsible for being beautiful, right? That's kind of, that's just like, that doesn't make any sense. I think what the journalists meant and what people sort of have in common in, in believing is that, because like being, so that would, by being responsible for beauty, being somehow more virtuous by being beautiful, does that mean that people who are not as beautiful don't have to be virtuous? Isn't that sort of a very odd setup there? So what sort of a question is that? Um, but I think what people want to hold you accountable for is the privilege of having beauty. And it's the same thing as the privilege of being rich, of having money, or the any kind of a privilege that you have, people want you to have a sense of responsibility because somehow it feels um, to them like you have been given a gift. And so we don't want you to just use it and have fun with it. We want you to share it with the world. And it's funny how in most other instances, even in the instance of, of having money, if you've made your own money, not everybody expects you to give it all away. Um, if you're an incredible athlete and you have an incredible athletic prowess and make a lot of money on that, they're not really expecting you to give it all away. But if you're a model and you make money on being beautiful, well, then you're vain and you're horrible for cashing in on that one quality that gave you the privilege. And that's the part that always confused me. And it still confuses me. Why is a woman not allowed to take advantage of something that she was given without being called names and, and put down and made fun of and, uh, and being considered stupid? You say beauty is not in the beheld, it's in the eye of the beholder. Does it also place a responsibility on the consumer? The beholder, like the person who of is... Of course. Who, okay, so here we sit, right? And who has decided, if they've decided so, that we are beautiful? Was it you? Did you wake up in the morning and say... God damn it, I think I'm really beautiful. I should do something about this because I look so great. I think I should make some money off of this because this is like, I proclaim myself beautiful. No, you're out in the world. You're told from a very young age that you are pretty or not pretty. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is sort of a societal construct of what pretty, what beautiful is and what the rewards are according to this. I didn't make them up. You didn't make them up. This is this is the way things have been structured for a lot, thousands of years, and so um, I, so I find it um, a little offensive that that we are then somehow held responsible for it. Um, you made history a second time at Sports Illustrated when, at fifty-five, you were the oldest model to be featured in the magazine's swimsuit issue. You wrote. How do I feel about being the old lady in Sports Illustrated? Do they really want me or am I here because of what I represent? What did you represent? Oh, I think at the time, um, 
I represented the token old lady. <laughs> I mean, quite literally. And was that, what did that mean to you? I mean, is it seems to me that in many of your reflections on aging, you're leaning into it. Uh, I don't have a choice. Well, actually, I do you have a do. choice. I can make myself look younger so I get to stay at the main table a little bit longer. Um, that seems to be kind of the easiest choice. Um, and so I don't by any means condone it. Um, or I can uh, sort of sink into this acceptance that this is what aging is and try to, by example, make it look as cool as it actually is and try to change people's perspective on this being ugly. You write about being in the space between J-Lo and Betty White. Tell me more. Oh, well, that's a... <laughs> um, I had I had actually done like a, a film shoot where I was um, made into a 70-year-old woman, you know, with like prosthetics and, and, and paint. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. Took a picture, posted it on Instagram. And this is when I had like two followers. Um, but those two followers got very offended by this picture. And they said, that is not what 70 looks like. You look like an old hag. That is not what 70 looks like. And I thought, really? Well, what does 70 look like? And I went online to research what 70 looks like these days. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any 70. Hey, I couldn't find 50-something years old, 60, 70-year-old women who actually looked their age. I could only find examples of graceful aging that, of course, today means not aging at all. You have stopped time and you look much younger. Or, which, like J-Lo, right? A couple of years younger than me. She looks 30. I could be her mother at this point. And then you have Betty White, who is so old at, at, at that point, um, that it, she's just delightful, adorable. Look at that. Isn't she just so cute? You sort of infantilize older people yeah. by finding them adorable. You know, she's got white hair, but she swears. Isn't that adorable? Fine. Great. So you have J-Lo and you have Betty White. And in between you have what? Grand Canyon, apparently. There's like nothing there. You write that middle-aged women, yourself included, are rendered invisible by our society's standards of beauty. Mm-hmm. What can you do about that? What can you do about having been rendered invisible? Well, the one thing that you certainly cannot do is stay invisible. You cannot accept, you can't accept that as something that uh, it should be accepted. You know, the whole idea of women aging out of being desirable, out of being valuable, out of being worthy, that to me, it very much, it keeps reminding me of like, you're the cow that, you know, gave milk and and uh, uh, had offspring, and then you're no longer useful for that, so you're put out to pasture. And if you die, nobody really cares. Just stay over there on the other side of the fence. Uh, we're women. We're not cows. I don't, I don't think we deserve that. And I think until fairly recently, this is just accepted. Like, there are so many things today that have changed for the better. There's, there's more color diversity. There's body diversity. There is gender acceptance of different kind of genders. There's so much that has been done in that. But ageism, that's still okay. That sometimes freaks me out is that you can't call somebody fat. That's, that's not nice. That's not cool. 
but you can call somebody past their prime. That's fine. That's like, that's done all the time. You're giving voice to a new movement. This is a new movement and I'm not entirely sure when exactly it started, but I think I was in the zeitgeist when, when it was percolating. Uh, but this is new. This is still, I mean, I certainly get plenty of negative comments about, you know, how dare I, how dare I um, try to represent my age as still being sexy. That seems to be a last frontier. You can be talented and older. You can be handsome and older. You can be even beautiful and older, but you cannot be sexy and older. That is absolutely out of bounds. You mentioned earlier that young models have power because of their social media followings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has burst you into new relevance with a new generation has also been Instagram and your social media presence. Mm -hmm. You write in the book about a young woman who recognizes you in a bar in New York as the woman who cries on Instagram. (laughs) Yes. Not as the international supermodel who made history all through the 80s, but as the woman who cries on Instagram. Um, Your husband, your late husband, Rick Ocasek, who was a lead singer of The Cars, died suddenly when he was recovering from surgery as you all were pursuing divorce proceedings, but amicably. And you confronted that tragedy bravely, even when learning that you had been disinherited from his will after his death. Much of your experience in grieving and navigating that betrayal as well, you shared publicly with your Instagram followers. Hence the lady who cries on Instagram. Correct. What made you decide to share your feelings of vulnerability publicly with people you didn't know? That's very easy. It's called a worldwide pandemic. (laughs) You're shut in your house. You cannot see anybody. There is no friends to hold your hand. There are no distractions. And you're ready to kill yourself. So it's probably better to reach out, even if it's sort of into the dark of the internet and social media and, 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 and raise a little cry for help, which is what I was doing with my unfiltered, vulnerable post. That was me drowning. You were watching me struggle to stay alive. And I wasn't the only one. The world had gone to crap. We were in a pandemic. It was People were dying. People were dying in hospitals on iPads with their loved ones at home. I mean, the, oh God, that's still, it, it like, it hurts me so much when I think back at those days and how horrifying it was for so many of us. Um, I was just one of many and I put my pain out there and there was a lot of pain in the world and we, we connected. So the people that were looking for some sort of a, light in the darkness, we sort of started pulling together and and formed, in a way, community on my page. Were you in such a dark place that you considered harming yourself? Oh, yeah. Did you make plans? I felt like there was an incredibly thin line between staying anchored in this world and 
taking a step over to the next one. I had two children who were deeply grieving their father. And I think that more than anything kept me anchored in the, well, you can't right now. I mean, I, I would, I would, I would find solace in ideas like, I'll kill myself later when the kids are over it. <laughs> wow. uh, so yeah, it, 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 it got really bad. And did your connectivity on Instagram help get you through? I believe that it was something that at least relieved my isolation a little bit. Again, like I write in the book, I felt like I had, you know, fallen overboard in dark waters and storm and I have no idea where I'm going. And I'm, yeah, I wanted to give up and just say, I can't anymore. I can't. And, and, and Instagram and the people who found me who were also suffering. Yeah, they were like little points of light. So I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll swim a little longer. I'll swim a little longer. And then, of course, what happened, what grief is, is there's nothing you can do about it initially. Nothing. You will feel just as bad as you feel. And it's only time that will file the edges of that incredibly sharp pain or the shock or the brain fog that you're going through. And so just swimming one day at the time was enough to for me to eventually understand that I was on my way out, that I was going to make it. You talk about depression. You talk about anxiety, which has plagued you for your entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and also the stigmas associated with mental health and getting help. Yeah. Getting help or not getting help. Um, it seems like with, uh, I mean, I, I do feel sometimes the world is so divided. It's like you're, you're, you know, you can't do anything right. You're, you're screwed if you do, you're screwed if, screwed if you don't. But having been an anxious person my whole life, well, since childhood and being in this career, where, you know, I would be on live TV and I would be doing, you know, like in the public eye and also every job, you know, for, for a model, every job, every day is a different day. It's different people, different settings, different locations. So you never have a routine and routine does stabilize you. It does make you less anxious. Yeah. That is something I never had the benefit of. I just had to white knuckle it for long parts of my life. Um, but this is where... Just, you know, aging and acquiring the wisdom of having seen yourself through all these difficult stages where you where you find that, you know, the acceptance of, yeah, you know what? That's me. Um, I have anxiety. I'm a woman with who, who has high anxiety and sometimes I just have to white knuckle stuff. And sometimes I'll carry a clonopin in my pocket if I think I can't make it. And that's okay. You reflect on the use of antidepressants, which, uh, you know, uh, you're very clear that you're, you're grateful that these drugs exist. Very. Um, and you have used them at times, but you also have reflected on how there's a downside, or at least in your experience. Yeah. I mean, again, this only, I can only speak for myself and I will, I am not attempting to speak for anyone else. For me, antidepressants gave me a vacation. I mean... I was on them for about four years and I felt, 
I, for the first time in my life, that buzz of anxiety that's like my steady background music seized. And I went, oh, it's quiet. Like, wow. And that feeling of constant pressure sort of released. And then as it did that, and I was feeling like, I'm feeling pretty good. I also realized that it released all of the things that made me me. Um, you know, my desire to speak, my desire to connect, my desire to be involved with things, my desire to have sex, it released all of those as well. So then I felt like eventually I had to make a choice. Do I want to be the me who suffers or do I want to be the not quite me who feels good? And I made the choice because I'm Eastern European. Possibly. I made the choice to be the one who doesn't always make it easy for herself because I believe that the best things in life are not easy. You, at one point, you write about a scene where you're out with your girlfriends and your girlfriends are all admitting that everybody else is on antidepressants as well. And you said you couldn't help but wondering whether there is this sort of middle-aged malaise that women go through mm. that is maybe akin to a midlife crisis that men go through when that, that isn't maybe recognized culturally. And so we treat it with medicine. Well... I mean, I think it it may be recognized as the dreaded menopause or perimenopause. I mean, a lot of that is actually physical symptoms. And today when you go in for perimenopausal symptoms, you will be offered an antidepressant. Um, and again, if that works for you, if it makes you feel better, then hallelujah, great. But I couldn't escape the notion that we just seem to be a room of you know, whatever, eight, 10 women, and all of us were medicated. And I found that a little odd because I thought, well, we don't all have mental disorders, do we? Um, what are we medicating here and why? Uh, and I think, I think, I think the world today really, <sighs> the world today is really centered on uh, not feeling bad. Nobody wants to feel bad. Nobody wants to feel grief. Nobody wants to feel heartache. Nobody wants to feel anxiety. Nobody wants to feel depression. Certain, certain things like depression, obviously, and like, and, 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 and mental disorders, those, thank God that we actually have medication for those and the people don't have to suffer. But, but grief is not something that should be medicated, in my opinion. Grief is something that you have to chew your way through because that's a part of life, as is heartache, as is a lot of the unpleasant things in your life. I think, I think we have forgotten how to deal with them or that we even should deal with them because we have other options. It's like we don't have to deal with wrinkles and sags because we have other options. And so it's easier in the short run. None of us really knows what happens in the long run. One of the things that I found hysterical is that you actually collect the criticisms that you <laughs> receive on Instagram. And uh, sometimes you'll repost them, uh -huh. highlight them, uh -huh. and actually kind of tackle them. Uh -huh. um, one was the following. I'll let you take it. Um, easy for you to complain about the system now that, you're, that you aren't an it girl. 
but you had no problem making millions of dollars enjoying your celebrity and making millions of young girls feel ugly and unworthy for decades. Now you're aware of how fragile self-image is? Um, you played a big role in creating the machine that makes people feel worthless. She goes on. Yes, I found that a, a, a really interesting and thought-provoking comment. Not kind, mind you, but I thought, well, I, I, if I had the possibility of sitting in a room with this woman, I would really love to have had a conversation and gotten into it. Well, tell me, why do you assume that that was my objective to make millions of women feel bad? Because that is an assumption in what she's writing. Um, but there's so much more about it, you know, sort of blaming her sense of not feeling good about herself on me. Uh, societal structure is also my fault because I'm promoting it. I'm objectifying women, making, you know, contributing to this problem of, it's like all my fault. And I thought, I'm definitely a part of the problem. See, this is where I will agree with her. I am a part of the problem because I use the same system that rewards us this way and punishes us this way. So I, I find that a really interesting conversation. Um, but ultimately, if you've ever bought a magazine or a skin cream or a hair dye or a mascara or any part of clothing based on some pretty face that's advertising it, guess who set it up? Not me, who just used the benefits. It's you who bought it. So let's put, like, let's all assume the responsibility for our parts in creating this world. In 2017, um, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, America Made Me a Feminist. And you also delivered a TED Talk. Yes. <laughs> along the same lines. Um, You've lived in Czechoslovakia, in Sweden, in Paris, and then in the United States, in New York City. Why was it America, of all those places, that made you a feminist? Because America was the only country in which the role of a woman was very unclear to me, having come from those three different cultural backgrounds. So in Sweden, women were all powerful. We were better than guys We because we could do everything a guy could do. We all, would also have children. And the choices of our mates were up to us. It was kind of a wonderful time to be, it's for, for your sexually formative years to be spent in Sweden in 1970s. It was great because I had perhaps a slightly exaggerated sense of myself, of, of my power as a woman, but I never doubted it. Um, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, it was made very clear where women were on the on on the scale of things. You know, they were mostly uh, somewhere with the domestic animals. You know, they, they you were to be cajoled and 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 sweet talked, and but you know when you were annoying, get get kicked and get out of here. Like it, it, it it's a an absolute patriarchy, no question about it, and a misogynistic country. Um, but women did have, you know, they did have rights because everybody worked in the, in Czechoslovakia. Women worked and men worked. That was a part of communism. Everybody's equal. Uh, but then, of course, when the work ended, guys went to the pub and women took care of the house and the kids. So uh, then you... You know, the, and, and then I get to Sweden where everything is super equal. Then I get to France where women are treated with a kind of um, respect 
respect and adoration and, and a fair bit of fear as though they're, you know, they're somewhat dangerous creatures. Um, and, and they, they can be. <laughs> but in, 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 in France, it was all about sort of the mystery of the woman and the sex appeal of the woman. And the woman didn't shout to proclaim who she was or what she needed or what she wanted. She had her little dark avenues to make her way and put herself in the place she wanted to be. But it was always kind of behind the man. And so to my Swedish self, I thought, well, that's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? You know, to, to claim that you have power, but you have to get the power by cajoling the guy. And I wasn't that into that. I was just like, oh, my, my Swedish upbringing. I'm like, hello, I am woman here, me roar. And everybody went, too loud, too loud, much too loud. So why did America make you a feminist? Well, because this was the only country in which, in, in which the female role was not clear to me. Because I came here and first I find out, you know, that women are amazing. This is the 80s, mind you. We wear gigantic shoulder pads because, you know, we are powerful presences and we wear sky high heels and tight skirts and we're sitting on the boards of big companies. And yes, we can be CEOs, although much less comfortable than the guys. Um, you know, our hair is huge. Our makeup is huge. Everything about us is slightly exaggerated to show our power. But when it really comes down to it, we're getting paid less in the workplace. And if you don't look the part, you don't get the job and you will be constantly criticized. If you do get to a position of power, well, then the critique of you is endless. And what do people criticize the most? Is it your abilities? That's the way you look. It's your pantsuits. It's your hair. It's your poor use of makeup, or bad lipstick. And I thought, I don't understand this. I'm being told that I can mm -hmm. do everything in this country. And then I am torn apart the minute that I prove that I can. Mm. And that is what sort of made me think, I think we really need this antiquated word, which means equality between mm. men and women, because we're not equal here. Mm. And, uh, and so then I... Yeah, I claimed the word proudly only to find out that it is now completely outdated and it's not the right word to use anymore. So looking for the new word that will mean the same thing. Equal opportunity, I like. Um, listen, this program, Firing Line, originally was hosted by William F. Buckley Jr. for 33 years. And he was an ardent anti-communist. Uh, <laughs> Your mother, while she was pregnant with your younger brother, made it back to Czechoslovakia. Um, in the times that she was there, she was observed by the police mm -hmm. and she would clandestinely listen to Radio Free Europe, which was the American-backed news agency that broadcast news, international news behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, in 1983, William F. Buckley Jr. spoke to Frank Shakespeare, who was the chairman of the Board for International Broadcasting, which oversaw Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. And here's what Shakespeare said about the significance of broadcasting reliable information into communist countries. Take a look at this and see if you agree. In a totalitarian society, when um, your job 
uh, uh, and every aspect of your life, whether or not you get an apartment, whether or not you have a car, all of those things are uh, controlled by the central authorities. Your ability for maneuver is considerably limited. Uh, it doesn't follow, in my opinion, that simply because people in totalitarian societies uh, know the truth, know the truth, that they are at the moment liberated, liberated or able to do something about it. But it does follow that there is a general usefulness to mankind to know the truth, and that over a period of time, uh, in certain circumstances, it can make a significant difference. I would think that, uh, that as you look back over the history of uh, communism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union over the last 30 years, you see some evidences of that. I happen to sit on the board of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and I'd love to know why was Radio Free Europe important to your mother? Well, my mother, like uh, like a lot of the youth in the country, suspected that there was a different world than the one that was presented to us. And Radio Free Europe was literally the only way that you could find out about this, this world that was beyond yours. I mean, it's literally like... Imagine yourself living in the zoo. You're in a cage and you're told every day that be grateful for your cage. You get food, you're taken care of, you're warm. Outside there, you have no idea what's outside. Well, Radio Free Europe provided you with what's outside. It told you what was outside. And it made those who found it and were willing to risk their lives, essentially, in order to listen to it, with an idea of freedom that was unknown to us and that the outside was not only not scary, but preferable. And so it was a very dangerous program. You talk about the power of totalitarianism and growing up in a totalitarian state, um, that you were trained that the state was your family mm -hmm. and that you, your responsibility as a good member of a family would be to turn in other members, perhaps your own family members, if they weren't sufficiently loyal to the state. Right. Any dissenters, um, we were taught this from preschool and on, that, um, that anybody who doesn't celebrate the Soviet Union as our closest friends, anybody that says anything negative about it, uh, or anybody that knows anybody who said neg anything neg negative about it, we would be praised for delivering the news to, you know, help the country to weed out those terrible people who were, you know, making, uh, making us suffer by, by spreading lies. Um, and so, yeah, I, as I was writing in the book, the real terror of occupation, of being occupied, which of course I wrote, actually I wrote that whole piece a day uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. It like literally just fell out. Uh, it, I was, my heart was so full of that. It just, it just came out. Um, the danger of, of occupation is not having to stand in a bread line at three o'clock in the morning. And the fact that you only really have flour and lard to eat and that you will never get new clothes or there's only one Barbie in a toy store in the entire city. Those are not the dangers. Those, those you can navigate around. The danger is that 
you don't have, you cannot rely on your belief. You cannot rely on yourself and that what you think, but your thoughts are occupied. It's you, your brain is occupied. It's like, it's like an alien takes over your brain and starts making other decisions for you. It's not just a governmental occupation. It's a psychological occupation it's, by the state. It's a psychological occupation, which is the most detrimental thing above all, because that kind of occupation also, as it invades your mind, uh, and, and it structures you into a certain kind of a person that is very... Uh, you know, you have a very tight container around you of what you of what you are and where you can go. And uh, some people strain against that container. Some people stay in it because they don't know any better. But if that container is ever dissolved, you have no bones. You would just you would just fall into a puddle. I mean, you are not a person. This you had choice words when Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah, it 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 triggered in you your feelings about totalitarianism and living and growing up in the Soviet Union. How yeah. do you feel about it now? I am still really effing angry. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe that we as a world have to watch this because we can't really do... I understand the cons political consequences of of messing with somebody as powerful as Russia, but it's 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 so disheartening that we that there's not really a whole lot that seems to be able to be done when history repeats itself, when you know where it's going, when you know this is wrong, and we can't help. There's we we can't help. Um, We're providing them with weapons. We're, we're providing, providing them, with, them with maybe weapons. belatedly. We're, we we're sending maybe done money. Sooner. We're sending clothes. We're like we're providing. We're doing the things that we can, but we're watching a bully attack a much much smaller person, and we're going, uh, "Hey, little guy, here's um, you know, here's a stick," um, and that's all we seem to be capable of doing. And I have to say, Ukraine to me, unlike my country, mm. who being used to being occupied for their entire existence, always kind of just threw in the towel. And I just think I'm going to jump out a window in, in, in a protest. And it's called defenestration. Yeah. And it is a check. It, it's an actual check phenomenon. We, we make it really difficult for our occupiers by throwing ourselves out of windows in protestation. But in Ukraine. But in Ukraine, those people picked up weapons. Those women and men just went to battle and they're doing it and they're doing it every day. And I am so, I am so sad and so heartbroken that this is necessary and yet so incredibly inspired by their bravery and by their insistence of not letting this Goliath swallow them. I mean, that's, that's inspiration. You write in your book, quote, in the war for self-acceptance, I have to battle myself, not to erase, but to acquire confidence, self-assurance, and acceptance. I want to be seen for all that I am, the good, the bad, the beautiful. How does that war turn into a peace? <sighs> I am not sure I ever want peace, honestly. I think life is more interesting 
when you keep learning and you can't, you don't learn much in times of peace. Times of peace are times for rest. I'll rest when I die. <laughs> so in the meantime, I'm going to keep on battling. Paulina Porskova, thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.